Um, Although, that being said, did you get to keep the bouncy castle? What time did they come? No, they, they arrived um, just after six oh. and took the bouncy castle. How, how did he deal with that? He was fine with it. He's very, very tired. <laughs> I can imagine. Emotionally and physically. Well, he'd been up at five, hadn't he? So, jeez. Yeah. I was, I'm never doing that again. Well, our kids didn't do anything the next day. Really? Yeah. Just lazed? Yeah, that was them. They are just like, okay. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah, it was great. It was just a bit, just that sort of nervous energy you get when you wake up and you're like, oh my God, it's half eight in the morning. And then you're like, are they dead? That's the only explanation I can think of. They must have expired. Should I check or should I live in innocence for a while longer? Yeah, either. Well, you know, it's either you can go back to sleep and then if the worst has happened, you're well rested to receive that news. Hmm. Or you go through then and you're both... Well rested. Let that make a difference. Whew, this would be a real trouble if I hadn't had a few hours, Kip. No, I'm just saying, it's probably infinitely better than if you go in and you are both cranky tired and also see that your children have expired. I, 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 <sighs> yeah. I can't think of a good time to receive that news, so I, I don't think it makes a difference. No, but either way, they were fine. They were just really knackered because... Oh, and... He bust his leg on that bouncy castle. Oh no, is he okay? He's absolutely fine, but he'd obviously pulled something because he was walking with a limp and he just kept <laughs> turning his foot in. I'm like, what the, what is this? Oh, poor little man. Yeah, but he wasn't complaining. He was just walking in this really odd way, but because he was twisting his foot around, he kept tripping over his own foot, which Soldier. when you run into the potty, it doesn't mm. work Wee. particularly well, yeah. Wee-wee's problems. Mm. Oh well, him. he was trying. He was. He was really, really going for it. I was terrified when he kept running on with the big lads, but they were quite good with him. <laughs> yeah. And I think his sister kind of wanted to steal my kids. Did she? Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is Consistently Eccentric, a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... So, this story... Mm. takes place in the Victorian era. It didn't start well. This story takes place in the Victorian era. Mm. And it does not actually start in the British Isles. I feel like you've committed false advertising and should immediately commit Sudoku. (laughs) Sudoku? A number puzzle? I mean, it's a fitting punishment. I don't want you to kill yourself. (laughs) You know I'm crap at maths. So, (laughs) Peter Miller Watson was a Scotsman and a man of business. (laughs) Specifically, his business was sugar, and, as it was prior to 1833, the most Mm -hmm. cost-effective means of producing sugar was via slave labour on the plantations of Demerara. Amazing. Miller had joint ownership in two plantations, one called Sea Town. (laughs) No way. Sea Town? Yeah. (laughs) The, The amount of people across these stories that we've encountered who, like, have proto-rap names or proto-rap locations. Like, it's just incredible. Like, Spencer Percival from the other week was Little P. Yeah, Little like, P in C-Town. Little P yeah. in C-Town. Here we go. It's like, a, it's like the start of a Little John song. Little P! C-Town! Yeah! Oh, <laughs> that, was his, that was his first plantation. The other one <laughs> was ironically called Good Intention. <laughs> <laughs> However, Classic. eventually, 1833 did arrive. 
and the Slavery Abolition Act was signed into law. Miller took the opportunity to apply for compensation for 18 slaves. Mm. He received £800, which is worth over 80000 today. And, although he couldn't call them slaves anymore, their emancipation came with a caveat that they would serve a non-negotiable apprenticeship for four years prior to being made super-duper free. Did that... Wait, really? Was yeah. that true across everybody? Yes. Oh, my it God. It was to give the, the owners time to... Um, transition over to other forms of labour like did they have know, to pay paid. them during this apprenticeship no 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 this was an apprenticeship as in indentured servitude so this was the the old school meaning of apprenticeship or <laughs> the meaning of any apprenticeship in london to this well, so day really freedom is actually 1837 not 1833 yeah, yeah well, the, well we need we need to go and change all of the dates and we need to you know stop being so god damn it even when we do something right we do it wrong well, Mil- Miller, he continued even after they were made really super-duper free, uh, mm. and he managed the plantations for about another 20 years before the reducing cost of sugar and the rising cost of wages from a base of zero. Mm. Uh, it convinced him he had to cut his losses and move back to Britain. Christ. I don't think I could take moving back to Britain if I'd been living in a, like, a tropical paradise for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be quite the thing, quite the culture shock for the man. But he did not return alone. Well, yeah. In spite of being happy to treat the local people as property for as long as he was able to, uh, Peter Miller Watson had entered into a casual relationship with a freed slave called Anna Rose, who herself was the result of a Scottish slave owner taking advantage of one of his slaves. Bloody Scots and their slavery. It <laughs> seems, you know, a lot of these stories appear to be... Not, not, not always a case of taking advantage, but it seems that the Scottish people who went out there often did have liaisons. Um, well, you know, they're... Uh, <clears throat> Miller's they're liaisons. Passionate race, the Scots. Oh, yeah. Hidden depths. It takes a long time to stir them, unless you're <laughs> talking about, I don't know, Glasgow versus Celtic. Unless um, you're talking about football or the Anglish. <laughs> but once they are stirred, the passions run deep. Um, their liaisons, though, Miller and Anna Rose, mm. have produced two children. But he hadn't married her. No. Uh, a girl named Annetta yeah. and a little boy called Andrew. Both were three-quarters Scottish and one-quarter African. And I say African because, obviously, we had no idea where these slaves originally were from because the slave owners didn't care, Yeah, which is nice, isn't it? They were just meat. Yeah, grist for the mill. Delightful. Uh, grist for the miller. Yeah, um, I, was just, I was just about to make that joke myself. Yes. Kudos to you, sir. I'm going to do an annoying internet hat tip. I thank you for your annoying internet hat tip. A miller, for reasons best known to himself, took the two children, but he left Anna in Demerara. Amazing. She would never (laughs) see her children again. What an absolute dick. (laughs) A legend. I'm going to do right by my kids, and I'm going to bring them back. Oh, we're we're going back back to England. Well, when I say we, um, <laughs> it's only only people who share my blood. So, sorry, Anna. What a plank! I, I just, I already despise him. It's too late. There's nothing like he's gonna. He'd have to literally like, I don't know, invent fusion technology to go even go halfway towards me thinking he wasn't. Peter Miller cock. Watson did not invent fusion technology, and to be honest, it's not really clear why he felt the need to take his natural children mm. that was a, a nice polite way of saying 
born out of wedlock, if you didn't mm. want to use the uh, the B word. Um, I would his... just say his children, because I would apply modern standards to it. Mm. Well, he was definitely clear that they were his natural children. Yeah, but not, and his, in, not indeed, his official in his, children. In his will, well, he had no <clears throat> official children. In his will, he referred to them throughout uh, as his natural children. And actually, in his will, he got the name of his own daughter wrong. What a cock. I know. Uh, well, it was sometimes he put her down as Anita and sometimes as Anetta. So he's just like, you know, it begins suppose, Anne. It's Anne something. I suppose if you want to be generous, you could say maybe he just couldn't spell. But... No, this was going through a notary. This was like... Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so he didn't seem to want to spend time with them when he returned to London. Anetta was almost immediately enrolled into an all-girls school in Colton, Staffordshire. This was for girls aged 11 to 19. But for some reason, a four-year-old Andrew Watson was also left in the charge of the teachers there. What? Yeah. So he sorted out a school for his daughter, and he was like, oh, God, I've also got this four-year-old lad. Um, Go with your sister. Go on. Off you go, Andrew. Unbelievable. I know. Uh, He was sort of brought up as an afterthought by the teachers. But he naturally picked up bits and bobs of education here and there. Enough, at least, that he was able to pass the entry exam for grammar school in 1866 and King's College School in 1872. Throughout his academic career, Andrew was perfectly average in every way, including sport, where he managed to become the captain of the third rugby team. <laughs> wow. Uh, so you know, I mean, he he did fine in school. He was one of those people who was, you know, and Andrew was also there. He didn't struggle, but he Phoebe's, was never going to be top of the class. <laughs> he would have had the opportunity that year while he was um, at Kings hmm. to watch the FA Cup final between Wanderers and the Scottish team of Queens Park. Wanderers won on account of the fact that the Scottish team could only afford to send seven players. Uh, and he did find four Scottish players living in London to make up the numbers. Andrew Watson didn't know it yet, but it was not the last time Queen's Park would feature in his life. Ominous. <clears throat> I know, I'm good at this foreshadowing. By this point, <laughs> Andrew's father, Peter, Peter Miller Watson, had uh-huh. died and left Andrew, his natural son, hmm. a tasty inheritance of £6,000. Was made... that his entire fortune? Or... No, um, oh. He left £6,000 to Andrew, £6,000 to Annetta, and then a substantially larger sum to his um, sister and her <laughs> legitimate children, oh including my. the house. I will point out his, his country estate was also left to his sister Jesus. rather than his own kids. But, well, I mean, he hadn't really seen them in years at this point, I assume. So. Uh, but, you know, he occasionally drove past given, in given a carriage. The state, given the state of the time. Given the state of the time, I bet he was bragging about it in society as well. Mm. I bet he was all out there like, oh, you know, I'm such a good parent. I've got two natural kids, you know. I've packed them off to an actual school. I didn't just leave them on a plantation. Actual school. And they're black. Well, and everyone was like, oh, my God, you're so enlightened. <laughs> no, honestly, he... Do you talk to them? No, of course not. <laughs> he, he was considered quite enlightened for doing that. You're making it out as a joke. No, people, I know. People did properly go... Oh, good on you for actually bothering to support these children that you made. No, no, no. I, I know. I'm well aware that the stand by the standards of the time, he was a good one. That doesn't make him good. I just, oh, God. That, just makes, that just makes the whole time wrong. 
Well, even though he'd only left £6,000. Yeah, there's still a lot of money. Yeah, it immediately made Andrew a gentleman of means. Yeah. Uh, And in a left-field move, considering he was now considered a gentleman, uh, Andrew decided that he would exercise his newfound freedom by refusing to apply for Oxford or Cambridge like his classmates. And instead, he decided to go north in search of his roots, and he applied to Glasgow University in 1875. Really? Glasgow? Oh, yeah. Not even not even Edinburgh, which is the actual good university. No, he Sorry, went Glasgow. straight for Glasgow. Uh, and not only did he go to Glasgow, he decided to go in the spring, knowing that he could only enrol in the autumn term. So he went so that he could spend six months Fair enough. soaking <laughs> up the atmosphere of Glasgow <laughs> and getting to know the place. He'd, he'd forgotten that the fringe wasn't going to be invented for another hundred odd years. <laughs> and was in Edinburgh. <laughs> yeah, fair point. <laughs> I'm in the I'm, wrong I'm century too. and the wrong place. I'm sorry, he is in the wrong place. Like, Glasgow is a wonderful town, but like, it, it, it isn't famous for its universities. <laughs> yeah, well, it was sometime in the summer prior to his first term at university. Yeah. I'm assuming he was a bit bored. Um, that he happened upon the footballers of Maxwell FC training in a local Glasgow park. Knowing literally no one, and Mm. being a very personable kind of guy, Andrew asked if he could join in their game. And he must have impressed, because on the 3rd of April, 1875, Mm. Andrew Watson found himself playing in his first association football match as a halfback. Everyone was a halfback. Every time you introduce me to a player across these things, they're halfbacks. Which is weird. It's just seven halfbacks and a goalie, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) No, if anything, halfbacks... And fullbacks were the rarest things because no one had defence. During this era of football, teams generally believed you just attack. Kick and so rush, it was common yeah. that teams would only put two defenders on the pitch during a game. Now, this may have been a mistake with a player as inexperienced as Andrew Watson was. Mm. And unsurprisingly, Maxwell FC lost to Oxford Juniors 3 0. 3 0 is not so bad. Though the Maxwell players did decide to protest a disallowed goal by refusing to leave the pitch at the end of the game. (laughs) Which was an an odd move because it inconvenienced them, but to everybody else, it was inconsequential. The game was over. (laughs) Yeah, nobody cared. Yeah, it's like, well, we refused to leave the pitch, and everyone was like, fine, but we're turning the lights off. (laughs) Um, This is happening. (laughs) Yeah, the changing rooms will be locked. Also, the complimentary meal we were going to put on for you afterwards... It's going to go cold. If you want to sit on this pitch, but for one disallowed goal, they were 3-0 down. <laughs> we demand you give us that goal. Why? Yeah. Some people. Now, the Maxwell Football Club struggled to make a mark, and within a few months, a decision was taken to merge with another smaller Glasgow team called Parkgrove. This provided Andrew with an opportunity to get involved with running a club as well as playing on the pitch, when he was made vice-president. This made him the first black football administrator at the age of only 19 years old. Jesus Christ. I know. I mean, fair enough. Well done, Scotland, for, like, you know, not limiting a man by his skin colour. Although I suspect the fact that he was probably the richest member of the team by a long, long way helped him. (laughs) I like to think it may have been because they recognised him as a burgeoning talent. But yeah, it may have been to do with the fact that he was flush with cash and could be persuaded to help support the club financially in the future. Yeah. Whatever the reason, <clears throat> the money, mm. Andrew Watson spent the next two seasons as a regular in the Park Grove team. 
and newspaper records of matches they played often recorded that the Park Grove goalkeeper didn't get a single touch of the ball throughout the entire match. So he must have been doing something right. (laughs) Or... (laughs) Two things he helped to innovate at this time. Mm -hmm. The idea of heading the ball. (laughs) Wow. And the idea of knocking the ball into touch in order to allow your team to regroup. So a lot of the English teams especially would play the rush game where they would belt the ball forwards and and then charge at you, um, sort of past the attackers and charge at the two defenders. And Andrew realised that if he just knocked the ball into touch, all of his players could get back and they could regroup and form a a better defensive thing. And um, everyone... It's quite quite an important innovation, really, because it it forces tactics to develop, doesn't it? Yeah, and... I just like the fact that apparently the other, you know, the other teams felt he was being a bit unsporting and he wasn't playing the game properly because he wasn't going to just try and run through seven players. So what he actually did was invent the tactical foul indirectly. I guess it is a little bit like the tactical foul. Yeah, just knock it out and force them to take a, yeah. you know, either a throw in or a, a kick from the sidelines, depending on yeah, what do, do something to break, He invented breaking the flow of the game rather than playing the ball. I don't think it was just him, but he was one of the first people to sort of go, oh, this is a way of um, reducing the disadvantage that I'm facing in this situation. So he's basically the Fernandinho of his time. I mean, that might be going a bit far at this stage in his career, but he was was (laughs) definitely something interesting. Purely in terms of, I'm not interested in playing football, I'm just going to hurt, I'm just going to ruin the game for you. (laughs) Another thing that was unusual uh, for a halfback, his first goal. It was recorded as via a splendid long shot after 20 minutes on the 18th of November, 1876. He must have loved the football, though, because he went up there to get an education and he just doesn't seem to have bothered. (laughs) He's just, you know, and he had the means. He could have been like, well, I'm going to go and do this now. You know what I mean? Nobody could have stopped him. I I think he he found something he was very, very passionate about. Yeah, that's really nice. I'm mm -hmm. glad. Because, as you say, by this time, Watson had dropped out of university after only attending a handful of lectures. Well, uh, you know, maybe if he'd gone to Edinburgh, to find them interesting. And he he decided that if he was going to be a university dropout for football, he was going to go all in on this football thing. Uh, And he helped to improve the standing of his Park Grove team by acquiring them a stadium called Trinidad Park. (laughs) <laughs> which was named due to the club president, James Wilson, having a close and apparently non-exploitative relationship with the Trinidadians as a trader. Uh, to the point where oh. he eventually went back to Trinidad and he was welcomed as an old friend. Because, <laughs> like, you were one of the few people who actually wanted... Treated us yeah, as people. <laughs> yeah, who wanted to trade with us rather than exploit us. And we love you for that, James Wilson. Well, good for you, James Wilson. Coincidentally... Um, the month that he helped to acquire the stadium, May 1877, was also the month he was voted to be club captain, making him the first black captain of a football team at the age of just 21. Going places, this lad. And he was in the right place because at this point in history, football was clearly more popular in Scotland than it was in England. And (laughs) as a result of how many people were playing, the tactics were being developed at a much faster rate. This, of course, famously, and we covered this when we talked about the FA Cup, included the development of the combination game, passing, rather than the big punt up the pitch and everyone running after it, (laughs) which was, and some would argue still is, the preferred method of football played by the English. Well, I mean... mm. (laughs) 
some parts of England, Burnley. <laughs> Having their own stadium meant that Park Grove could now arrange to play the big boys of Scottish football, with the first yeah. game of 1877 being against Rangers and the Ooh. second against Queen's Park, considered mm. the best club in the world at the time and the current Scottish cup holders. And They're they, in the third division now, Queen's Park, aren't they? They, they have the heritage, though. Yeah. That's the thing. And they developed Andy Andy Robertson. So, you know, I've, I love him forever. Thanks, thanks Queen's Park. Mm. There you go. You know, they're, they're still... They are, you hit in Messi t- in the head once, <clears> it's hilarious. In terms of heritage, there is no Scottish club that comes close to Queen's Park. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to the old firm, but it's just true. Um, but amazingly, plucky little Park Grove almost held them at bay. They only conceded late on to lose 1-0. Mm. Understandably, as a defender in that game, Andrew Watson stood out and Queen's Park made sure to keep tabs on him. The 1878 season started with Andrew Watson playing his first game south of the border, where Park Grove lost to the mighty Blackburn Rovers. (laughs) Though grudgingly, this may have been due to it being one of four games they played in a single week. (laughs) basically they had a cup tie and they said once we win this cup tie we'll go and play a couple of games against Darwin and Blackburn Rovers south of the border as kind of like a a publicity tour get a bit more money in Um, but it turned out that they drew the cup game so they needed to play a replay so suddenly it went from three games in a week to we've got to play four games in a goddamn week and the only (laughs) one that actually matters really it's is the, the last one. So, um, yeah. I'm, I'm, Don't knack yourselves, lads. Yeah, play, enjoy yourselves. But, you know, if, if it's going to possibly lead to you getting an injury, just, just let them score. <laughs> this was one of many events, though, this South of the Border Tour. Yeah, I was just about to say, so how did they arrange a football season then? Was it only... It was only friendlies and cups. Yeah, I was going to say there was no official league, was there? So no. there, was, there would be the cup and then there would just be whatever the clubs could arrange themselves. Yeah. So the, when we say, you know, the, the cup competitions like the FA Cup and the Scottish Cup, they were really the only competitions, competitions that there were. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, These were the most important matches, so you would not... Yeah, I think I remember that from when we did the FA Cup episode oh, like a year ago now, but um, I just wanted to make sure. But the, the South of the Border Tour, it was one of many events organised to try and raise funds for the club. Yeah. As Andrew Watson had lots of his inheritance invested in the club, he was happy to do whatever was needed to improve their fortunes. And this included regularly entering the sports days that were organised, where he would usually win the standing high jump, (laughs) where you don't get a run-up, you literally jump. (laughs) His lifetime best was five foot nine inches. What? Yeah, so the guy could clear me with half a foot to spare, and he would more often than not also place in the 100-yard dash. I'd, I'd need to see that. I can't believe a man could... like. I mean, I could see it, like... There is footage like available. A, are we talking like a flop-type jump? We're not talking like he went straight up in the air and his feet cleared five foot nine. I I think it may have been the sort of forward roll-style yeah, jump. Yeah, like, like, like there, there's a bar that he has to clear that's five foot yeah. nine high. Right, okay. And that makes it a, bit, that makes it a lot more believable. <laughs> Another way they tried to raise some more cash in 1878 was to experiment with the concept of floodlit games. The first trial had taken place at Bramall Lane in Sheffield just a few weeks before Parkgrove mm. tried it. Unfortunately, for their experiment, they only had one light. 
And though it was a whopper, <laughs> it couldn't quite illuminate the entire pitch at once, leaving the operator to swivel it to try Depending and keep on up where with the clay. ball was. Oh my god! <laughs> Often leaving both goalkeepers in complete darkness when the action was in the centre of the pitch. Amazing. Uh, not surprisingly, it didn't catch on, and what little money the stunt made was given to charitable causes. So <laughs> we don't want your tainted floodlight money. <laughs> but could you imagine if that was still a concept? How much the home field advantage would count? Because <laughs> you'd know how wide the pitch was. And yeah, stuff. Be, no, but no. I mean, like you just get the guys on the spots, just like as they were following them up, they're on a break, just being, oh no, I'm a bit slow keeping up with play. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Yeah, and it gets even worse when it's the rivals in town rather than just some randoms. Yeah. Oh, what do you mean I was shining it directly in your goalkeeper's eyes during a penalty? I was just trying to illuminate the area. Yeah. God. I was trying to help him, <laughs> not hinder. By 1880, though, Park Grove were established as a major Glasgow team, and Watson had risen to be considered one of the best defenders in Scotland. As a result, he was chosen as part of the Scottish Canadians, a team selected to embark on a tour of Canada. Right. They never actually made it further afield than Northern England, though. <laughs> where Andrew... Just, were, where are we going? Canada. Do they care about football? No. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, what the, what they'd hoped was, they're like, they, they, they set out their aim. We are going to be the Scottish Canadians. We are going to go to Canada. Do we have yeah. the funds for this Canada tour? No. We'll do a tour of Northern England to raise the funds so we can then do the tour of Canada. So there was Andrew a... sitting on his hands and be like, don't look at me, don't look at me, I'm not paying for this one. Yeah. <laughs> I've already given all I'm giving. No, uh, so they, they wanted to do the Northern tour, but in the end, the yeah. pre-tour happened, but the yeah. tour tour didn't. But it, it wasn't completely a bust for him uh, because not only was Andrew able to avenge the defeat against Blackburn Rovers by winning 8-1, uh, but they That's also... surprising. It's like Scotland's national team playing Rovers. <laughs> well, he also managed to convince the Glasgow representative team that he should be included in the annual game against Sheffield, which was a big thing. The City versus City game, Glasgow right. versus Sheffield, was a massive thing. And all the Glasgow teams um, would send people for trials, essentially, to get into this Glasgow representative team. Right. So, yeah, it was, it was a prestige thing as much as anything else, yeah. With Watson in defence, Glasgow beat Sheffield 1-0. And Watson would go on to represent Glasgow two more times, never losing. What a champion. Then abruptly, at Easter, his club Parkgrove no longer existed. What? Yeah, just stopped. Stopped being a thing. Why? Well, the exact reason is unclear. But Andrew Watson suddenly fell on himself without a team and with a massive chunk of his inheritance just gone. Um, it's most likely that the, can, I was just going to say how can the exact reason be unclear there must be at least a guess come on well the guess is that um, the harsh winter of 1879 had resulted in a massive loss of earnings from cancelled right. games and the club didn't have the savings to recover because all of Andrew's money had gone into um, renting Buying the, the stadium because it turns out it was rented right. and apparently the guy who rented the stadium he was quite a stickler for sticking to the payment schedule because the month after Park Grove folded, the stadium was still available to hire. It mm. wasn't... he just kicked them out and gone, right, well, if you're not going to pay me on I'm time... I'm going to find a tenant who can't do Yeah. Um, a jerk. I mean, that club could have got legitimately gone on to be like the third team in Glasgow or maybe even replaced one of the other two mm, at all well, the right gear. They, they were getting there. They were considered one of the big upcoming teams, you know. 
Um, but either way, Watson barely had time to mourn the loss before he was asked to join the best club in the country, Queen's Park, who probably couldn't believe their luck. Mm. And this is where the unclearness comes in, because some people say that Parkgrove folded because Andrew Watson left to go to oh, Queen's right. Park. Oh, right, so he, t- he took his money out and said, I'm not funding you anymore, well, kind no, of thing. No, this is the thing. He lost a load of money, which is why I don't think that's what happened. Right. I mean, Andrew Watson was a guy who was never particularly concerned about money, and I, he didn't come across as someone who was particularly keeping track. Apparently, he was the kind of guy where if you asked to lend money, he'd be, oh, yeah, he'd write you a check, he'd give you some money, and he'd never call that back in because he wouldn't really remember. He was right. so focused on, I like playing football, that money <laughs> so he, was just oh completely... My God. So he was, he was just a footballer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like... <laughs> the, the money, he got it into his head that he had enough money that he didn't have to worry about money for the rest of his life. He'd yeah. internalised that idea. Um, but he innovated he... so much. He was so far ahead of his time. He invented tactics and passing and heading and <laughs> being a modern footballer who doesn't know anything about how to manage money. <laughs> well, yeah, he he had no idea about managing his money and he just assumed because he'd been told it's an inheritance that'll see you through for life. Mm. All right, okay, that's what that it That literally do. meant do anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, just follow your passions. Yeah. On May 14th, he won his first silverware as Queen's Park beat Rangers 2-1 in a replay of the Glasgow Merchants' Cup final. This is the equivalent of like the League Cup over here, so it was the second string right. um, okay. competition. This was despite being reduced to 10 men in the first half due to injury. Oh, yeah, there were no subs or anything, was there? So Yeah, yeah. yeah so it was, it was a case of someone got injured. Oh, well. <laughs> Sucks to be you. Yeah, literally. Hmm. <laughs> Oh, God has clearly intended that you have a disadvantage. <laughs> but this win made Andrew Watson the first black footballer to win major silverware ten days before his twenty fourth birthday. He's racking up these. He's absolutely smashing these oh, records. Yeah. I mean, part of it he's racking up these because football is in still pretty much its embryonic stages. But mm-hmm. also, he, he was genuinely the best defender. Probably in the world at this stage, <laughs> you know. And this is this is someone who, let's not forget, had shown no sporting aptitude throughout his entire school career. Had just ended. it just shows you how much of a like a niche each sport is. Like mm. you've got to have the interest. Like it doesn't like. I mean, there's some freaks out there who are like just interested in all sport and are good at all physical activity, but some people need like that specific trigger to activate all of their natural abilities. He must be one of those people. Well, all I know is Andrew probably saw the loss of his investment at Park Grove as a blessing in disguise because he was now <laughs> a member of the best team in the world and um, would soon be recognised as one of the best individual players in Scotland, being named captain of Queen's Park in November 1880. So he's basically the Virgil van Dyke of his time. Well, he went in 1880 from playing for Park Grove... Mm-hmm. and having Park Grove just dissipate, just stop being a thing at Easter, yeah, to winning one of the two Scottish Cups and becoming captain of the best team in the world. You know, that's a pretty good end to what started out as possibly a shitty year. <laughs> yeah. But if 1880 was a good year, 1881 was even better. Vintage. Not only did Watson, as captain, help Queen's Park to retain both the Glasgow Merchants Cup and the Scottish Cup, Mm. but he was also finally called up to the Scottish national team on Saturday, March 12th, to play England at the Oval in front of 5,000 fans. He played football at the Oval. 
uh, the Kennington Oval. Yeah, it's where the first FA Cup final was played. Oh yeah, mm. the Oval. Jesus Christ! Sorry. I bet the groundskeepers were really made up with that. <laughs> I don't need but what to about the wicket? But what about the wicket? <laughs> well, this was uh, this was March twelfth. They had plenty of time to get get the wicket sorted mm. after twenty two. <laughs> Burly men had been running about on it. In hobnailed boots, because yeah. it wasn't it wasn't like light touch oh, shoes, was it? They weren't in blades, no. <laughs> anyway. Scotland played in yellow and pink stripes with blue wasn't shorts. Wasn't that their national colour at the time? Um, I, I believe the first couple of games, they were actually, they got the um, home kit dialed in pretty quickly. This must have been an experiment in away kits. So yellow and pink stripes with blue shorts. Or knickerbockers, as they were described at the time. <laughs> because the Victorians couldn't name anything normally. No, and even the ridiculous kit couldn't dampen the pride that Andrew Watson felt representing his country. Especially, it's really nice that he feels so connected to Scotland. Like it, it's just, it's it's bizarre to me that he does. But uh, you know what? That's the power of football. Isn't the important it? thing to point out here is that Andrew just turned up for a kickabout. Yeah, and rose all the way to best defender with, in the world. With people just being, you know, <laughs> taking him as he was. Yeah. Very few, if any, of the newspaper reports ever referred to his heritage. It was just, yeah. here's Andrew Watson. He's a Scottish lad, and he is yeah. bloody good at this game. I have, I have read this thing. It's like racism did exist, but it was mainly an upper merchant class thing. Because there was absolutely no way for the vast majority of the population to even like experience other people, people of other races, like they own soldiers went and fought, and they came from the working class, and sailors sailed about, and they came from the working class. But all the command level decisions, all the stuff that actually mattered, came from the merchant and upper classes, and they had racism, and they were like inherently, you know opposed to you know colored people having rights and stuff, which is why the slavery thing dragged on and on. But like most normal people, like it's an extension of classism, isn't it? Because they they need to have a class structure in order to continue to be the ruling class. And as you're sort of interacting with other countries, you need to be able to say, well, the ruling classes are below us as well, because we don't want any more competition in terms of who gets to have all the profits. Yeah, of course. Mm. But but then the, the, the corollary of that that we never really think about is that all these people who have no, like, they're not taught, because they're not taught to, to other them, mm. you know, they don't make them different, because they don't, they, it's only because, I suspect it's only because, like, working and middle class people would not be taught or think about non-white people at all. Mm. It means that they're a blank slate, like, so, it, it's, it, what, I'm, what I'm trying to say is it suggests that racism is a learned behaviour rather than a Oh, it's a complete one. construct. I mean, it's built on the idea that there is an inherent... Um, Otherness. Yeah. You, part of human development was to identify people who are different. And other yeah, so there's, people... there's the in-group and the out-group, yeah. of course there is. Yeah. But that, that was, you know, that could be along any lines you want. The lines you draw it on are completely arbitrary. Yeah, they don't have to be skin colour. No. It could be the people, you know, who are trying to take all of the resources for themselves and convince mm. you that that's their right based on the fact that their great 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 grandfather once worked as the royal arsewiper and that seems a lot more stupid than <laughs> <laughs> but yeah 
Anyway. So, yeah, he was... You said this wasn't a political podcast. No, this isn't a political podcast. And Andrew Watson was very proud to be stepping out in his yellow and pink kit hmm. as a representative of the Scottish by national God, team. most of Scotland was proud of him as well. Oh, yeah, especially because he was the captain of that Scotland mm. team. Good making him. him the first black player to captain an international team at the age of 24. The Nuts. game today is remembered not only for Andrew Watson's amazing personal achievement hmm. as a guy who, let's remember, was practically unaware of football at the age of 18, but rose to be <laughs> national captain of the best team in the world only six years later. Hmm. It's also remembered for the scoreline. Scotland humiliated England 6-1. <sighs> and it is, to this date, the heaviest defeat England have ever experienced on home soil. I'm surprised Scotland don't talk about that more, to be honest. It's probably because it's literally 140 years ago at this point. It's still the biggest defeat England have ever had in England. Watson will captain Scotland to a 5-1 victory against Wales two days later. And the following year, Watson will play in front of 20,000 at Hampden Park when Scotland again beat England, though this time only (laughs) 5-1. So they're getting better, the English. And that's the end of the story. Andrew Watson went on to have a long career for Queen's Park and Scotland and is now remembered by all as a trailblazing icon. No, he's not. Well, he would have done if he hadn't abruptly announced that he was moving to London to accept a job in the civil service. What? Well... You've run out of money. You see, along with the investment in Park Grove Football Club, Andrew Watson had also heavily invested in a merchant company along with some of his Park Grove teammates. All right. Andrew was really, he, he wasn't day-to-day, he was just an investor. He was a silent yeah. partner. And he expected, and had been promised, a regular income on top of his capital. Uh-huh. Unfortunately, mismanagement and a rather significant fire put paid to all of that. Oh, no. This, coupled with Watson's well-known generosity towards others, had left him suddenly in need of money. And, as all football in Scotland was amateur, he had no means of supporting himself and his family. <coughs> As by this time he had a wife and two kids. Poor bloke. I know. What well, a way to have your dream ripped away from you. Well, it's, he's just having to relocate. We're not saying his mm. dream's been ripped away from him yet. Well, yeah, but he's, he's, got to, he's got to leave Scotland, which he is where all the hot football's Scotland. going on, and uh, go to London where all the crap football's going on. Well, he was... And still is to this day, Chelsea. <laughs> he was not the only Scottish player lured south of the border during the 1870s and 1880s. Because although the English game was supposed to be amateur... Yeah. Northern clubs especially were coming up with ways of circumventing this rule. Oh my God, the north of England was the PSG of its time. Well, no, 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 we, we don't pay you. What we do is we pay your wife. <laughs> the problem was, like, the, the amateur game in Scotland was a gentleman's agreement kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the amateur game in the south of England was, well, we are all, you know, men of business during the week and then we go and we play and it was the whole... Well, we're teaching right. our sons to toughen up. Whereas in yeah. the north of England, it was, well, this is something that we could use to actually get ourselves out of poverty. So we want it to be a professional game. We As want to be able to get paid is. for this, yeah. Because um, <laughs> when you grow up in the north of England in the 1800s, your one thought is, how do I get out? <laughs> but what, what the northern clubs thought was, in order to make money out of football, we need to be the best teams in the world. And the best teams in the world are currently Scottish. So what we need to do is we need to get Scottish players to Mm. come to our clubs 
and to help us develop these tactics we've heard so much about. (laughs) So as an example of how they got Scottish players there without technically breaking the amateur rule, let's let's start with uh, Blackburn Rovers, for example, who Mm. gave Scottish player Fergus Souter a pub to run. So they didn't pay him. (laughs) They gave him a very um, well-liked and very established pub, which he could run. Uh, the idea of paying Scottish players via sam- sham positions in companies or plum jobs became known as shamateurism, <laughs> while the players who benefited became known as the Scottish professors and were instrumental in developing the English understanding of tactics. Oh, I've heard of the Scottish professors. I've mm. heard the phrase anyway. Yes, yeah, so the, these were the guys who, a bit like Andrew Watson, they couldn't afford to play as an amateur in Scotland. But they loved the game reason. so much that they would do whatever it yeah. took to keep playing. So they found a way. They said, well, you know, because it was the northern clubs who were tempting these Scottish professors, the northern mm-hmm. clubs started kind of taking winning over. <laughs> yeah, and winning things. Well, the the FA Corp went north um, and didn't then return to the south before the turn of the uh, 20th century. Yeah. So there was 20 years of northern dominance that was based mainly upon the fact that people kept sort of... Um, Bringing, bringing these Scotsmen across the border based on so the fact that they needed money. So the idea of honest competition as football has been dead since literally proto-football. Since its inception, it was, we we found a way to pay you. Yeah. Oh, great, I'll play for you. Great. Yeah. Who, whoever's got the most money wins, as always, forever and ever. Yeah, there was never a golden age. Uh, it's fair to say, though, that the move south was a disaster for Watson because he went too far south. He went all the way to London. He never played for the national team again because it could only be players based in Scotland who could play for the national team. Uh, And in total, he played only 57 games over the course of the next three seasons. His lack of games had something to do with the fact that he was constantly travelling back to Glasgow. Why? Well, it might have been due to his two children living there with the grandparents following the death of his first wife but it was most likely that Watson had only left for financial reasons and would come up with any excuse to be back in the city he loved, watching and playing for Queen's Park whenever he could. (laughs) Poor bloke. (laughs) So technically he wasn't on Queen's Park's books, but he kept turning up and saying, well, if you need a defender, I'm I'm here, I have my boots, Um, feeling good. It got so bad that when he was selected to play for Corinthians in 1884... You know the the quintessential amateur team, yeah. The team that were created to show that amateur football was the best. Um, the captain was forced to place an ad in the papers asking that Watson contact him to let him know where he was <laughs> and if he might be, you know, planning available. And playing. Yeah. <laughs> Even though he'd been selected in the team, it's like, and Mr. Watson, please, will you let us know if you're actually going to turn up? Because if not, <laughs> lost and found yeah. one footballer. <laughs> It was also a testament to Watson's ability that Corinthians, Swifts and Surrey County continued to pick him for games with no guarantee that he would turn up. <laughs> See, he, he was kept, just that damn good. Yeah. He was that damn good that, you know, even if he only turned up for one out of every five matches, it worth was it. worth it to have him in your team. Yeah, he's uh, the Virgil van Dijk of his time. Nothing would convince me otherwise. Unsurprisingly, given the fact that he kept going to Scotland... Uh, Watson's job in the civil service in London didn't Mm. last that long. And by Mm. the 1885-86 season, he was Mm. back in Scotland, in Glasgow, 
with Queen's Park. Right. Ironic- Giving up everything to play football amateur. <laughs> Ironically, he'd left England just as professionalism in England was accepted for the first time. This was, as we've said, a response to the fact that the Southern amateur clubs were regularly losing to the Northern sides who were willing to provide financial compensation, not payment, very clear, to their players, which had resulted in the FA Cup moving north in 1883. And as I've said, it wouldn't return to London for the rest of the century. Uh, It was Tottenham Hotspurs who finally brought it back in 1903, I think. Of course, who could forget the last time they won a major trophy? (laughs) Watson played the entire season, uh, the 1885-86 season, and he appeared happy. Mm. Poor, but happy. (laughs) Yeah, but he only played two games the following season. Mm. His last official game for Queen's Park, at the age of just 30, was against Bolton Wanderers. Mm. They lost 6-1. Oh, the magic's shined off. Watson was married a second time in February 1887, and he moved with his new English wife to Liverpool, where he had secured a job as an engineer at the docks. However, there were strong suggestions that this position may have had more than a little to do with his new club. Everton. No, the long-time nemesis of Everton. The other club in Liverpool. Bootle. You're not going to say Liverpool, are you? (laughs) Bootle. Because Liverpool didn't exist at this point, did they? Liverpool didn't exist. Bootle were the team. Yeah. Uh, As they still are, in many Puritans' eyes. (laughs) Name name me one person. Bootle FC don't even exist. Me, now. But I've read this story. I'm a Bootle fan and proud of it. Uh, It's good going, mate. You have to resurrect a dead club by yourself. uh, I've I, no, I don't even have ten friends. I can't. Oh, that's depressing. No, no, Bootle FC do exist. Good. Yeah. Well, they had a Scottish captain play for them, much like Liverpool have. So really, there's no difference. Mm. Watson came out of retirement to play for Bootle in the 1887-1888 season. Yeah. And even if it was part of a deal to secure post-football <laughs> security, Watson mm. was still often mentioned by name in the press for the quality of his play. However, by the end of the season, a run of injuries prevented Watson from playing, and he finally announced his final super-ending retirement (laughs) in July 1888, bringing to an end his 13-year career. So he didn't keep coming back, he he didn't become the Rocky of football? No, no, this this was the end of it. One of his last games, um, and this is completely for me and you, was Mm. against Southport High Park. No, who would become Southport FC? Uh, yeah. Ah, amazing. Did, did, did he win? Yes. Oh, Even better. I hate Southport. <laughs> uh, at the age of 31, Andrew Watson took a job with the West Indian and Pacific Steamship Company. He passed his second engineer and first engineer qualifications, completing yeah. each a full year quicker than was normally expected. He seems like he was just really competent, but only when he was interested in stuff. <laughs> the weird thing is, when I said he uh, applied for Glasgow University, hmm. he was going to take an engineering degree. He got sidelined by football for 13 years because he loved <laughs> it so damn hard. And when he realised he couldn't do it anymore, he went, what was I... Before I went down that park, what was I, what was I supposed to be doing? I was on the way to be an engineer, right? I'll pick that up. Yeah. Fair enough. That's it's as good a plan as any. Um, 
Uh, the only thing that's the only thing that might cast a shadow on him. Like I understand that his first marriage ended. Did, did it end because of a death? Or ended because his, his wife died, and that was very shortly after he moved to London. So he moved to London. It probably had um, something to do with why he, you know, crapped out of it so quickly. Because mm. as far as omens go, moving south and y- your wife immediately dying doesn't bode well. Yeah. Did he have kids from that marriage? Or he not? had two from his first marriage, two from his second. Did they all stay with him? That like, he didn't bin them off like his dad did. Well, he didn't. He didn't bin them off. But his his original kids, his yeah. first two, they were Glasgow born and bred. They wanted to stay in Glasgow, and his um, the the wife's parents were agreeable in keeping them right okay. in Glasgow. And he was coming back so all often all the time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he ended up back there anyway. So well, no, he ended up in Liverpool. Well, yeah, but he, for a time he ended yeah, up back yeah. in Glasgow. So like, it's not like they went without him for most of their childhood. No, no, no. I mean, there's nothing to say that he was a particularly bad dad, nothing to say he was a particularly good dad. It wasn't mentioned. And yeah. none of his four kids sort of... There's no story of you know them dying prematurely. They, they just yeah. lived lives. There and was... they never achieved historical significance. No, no. So. They, were, they were just fine. Yeah. So, yeah, he, he managed to complete his um, second engineer and first engineer qualifications each a year ahead of how he should have done. So he knocked yeah. two years off becoming a first engineer. Nice. Whatever that means in the context of shipping. I think it means that you run the engine room when you're first engineer. Sounds like it. No, that would be chief engineer. First chief. Come on. Right. Yeah, it's not the same thing. <laughs> Is this the whole Premier League versus championship? I'm a I mean, champion. It, it, yeah, but... it might be. I think it's it's probably that the, the chief engineer is an officer and deals with the captain directly, whereas the first engineer is the guy on the floor making it happen. Oh, so like, he would be, he would be in charge of like. My, I, I don't know this. I can't remember why. I don't know why I think this, but I must have read something about it because I'm very confident that I'm correct. But I can't tell you exactly why. So I apologise if I'm completely wrong. But I believe it would be the case that like, like the get like basically like the on the shop manager like actually telling people like the captain would say to the chief engineer full speed ahead the chief engineer would say to the you know the guy in the engine room full speed ahead captain's orders and then that guy would be like right you do this you do that you do the other you know like like mm. he would be the guy on the scene turning that one order into the various things that needed to happen in a complex steam-based ship to make it do what the captain said basically cool so important and probably had a chance of becoming the chief engineer on a ship at some point. But... Well, because he was able to um, knock two years off the mm. sort of training that he had to do, it meant that he qualified as a first engineer mm. just a week after the Scottish FA finally accepted professionalism <laughs> in May 1893. <laughs> oh, poor bugger. Mind injuries done him in at this point, yeah. so he couldn't have done it anyway. Andrew Watson sailed long-haul routes to the Caribbean, stopping in Trinidad, Barbados, Jamaica, Haiti, and New Orleans. But it would also stop in Demerara, allowing him to finally visit the place he had been born. Crazy. Although he was at sea for months at a time, it was generally around four months per Mm. sailing, and the fact that he, when he was at home, he'd set up his life in Liverpool, Watson was still occasionally spotted at Queen's Park Games, the club he loved. That's really nice. Mm. Watson retired at the age of 50, meaning he'd spent longer as an engineer than he did as a footballer, and he moved back to London in 1910. He died in 1921 of pneumonia and heart failure on the 8th of March. 
Why did he move back to London? Do we know? No. He apparently the the house that he he had just during his retirement was a little semi-detached uh, in a nice quiet cul-de-sac. Mm, fair enough. I think it was just a case of he could afford to. It was you know the place to be. Maybe he, his wife wanted to live there yeah. in her old age or something. Who knows? Maybe it it was just a decision that was was taken and it ended up where he was. I mean, I think if you'd have asked uh, Andrew Watson where he'd wanted to move, it probably would have been Glasgow. <laughs> Next to Queen's Park. <laughs> I will live in the ticket office. <laughs> there is a two up, two down terrace house across the road. From- no, Andrew. <laughs> You've worked hard for 20 years as a first engineer. You can afford you can afford to live in a little bit of luxury. I don't want the luxury. I want the football. I want the football. <laughs> well, the funny thing man. is, even though he's trained as a first engineer, yeah. apparently he very rarely took that role. He wanted yeah. to be a second engineer because he liked getting down and dirty and doing stuff. He liked the <laughs> practical side of things. And I think that goes with his football as well. It's like, do you want to be a striker? Do you want to be the one scoring all the goals? No. No, I want to tackle him I and kick to, him. <laughs> I want people to admire my work ethic and my understanding of the fundamentals. I'm not showy. <laughs> and the same with his engineering. It's like, I want I want people to know that I can actually do the nuts and bolts of it. I want to be, you know, by the superheated steam. I want to know that if I get this wrong... Things will explode and yeah. hurt. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, I respect that. He seems like a top dude. I, I, I've grown to like him through the yeah. research. He was a pioneer who arrived on the scene just a few years before the time of professionalism hmm. when he would not have had to sacrifice his football dreams in order to, you know, live. Yeah. And he had to do that at the height of his powers as well. You know, this was... He had won four Scottish Cups with Queen's Park. He was yeah. the established captain of the Scottish national team. Yeah. And suddenly... He was, he was the top man, yeah. He absolutely. had to give all of that up. Andrew Watson, because he had to give up at the height of his powers, yeah. um, was largely forgotten as the professional league system began to develop yeah. on both sides of the border. The next time a black player would represent Scotland was in 2004 when Nigel Quashy was selected to play. Meanwhile, England had to wait until 1978 before Viv Anderson became the first black player to earn a full England cap. Hmm. There was a gentleman who played in the youth setup, I think up to under nineteens a few years earlier, but never got a full international cap. Yeah. Viv was the first one to break that particular glass ceiling. Well, I mean, yeah, and the, the the shame is he had to be truly exceptional as well. Like Oh yeah. I would I suspect there were probably many, many black players who were of of the standard or there there or thereabouts who could have played for the national team before that but didn't get a look in. Yeah, because you had to be so good that you couldn't be denied. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Viv, Viv Anderson was so good that like it would have been deeply stupid to not play him. Whereas if there was an argument, they would always go for the white man at that mm. time. So there you go. That is the story of Andrew Watson. Um, the black pioneer of Scottish football. So the main source that I used for this episode was mm-hmm. A Straggling Life, Andrew Watson, the story of the world's first black international footballer by Lou Walker. And the amount of detail this guy went into, I mean, he went through so many newspaper cuttings to try and piece together um, Andrew Watson's career. And there's the appendices just has every game where the result is known <laughs> that he played. It's, it's insane hmm. the, the amount of work he went to to get this together. It must have been really important too. 
It's, it's cool. If yeah. anything, you know, if the story of um, if the story tells us anything, it's that we should all follow our passions, mm. you know, to live a happy life. So, in terms of his overall total games that he played, mm-hmm. three hundred and thirty-six. He played two hundred and twenty-seven of those in Scotland, mm-hmm. one hundred and nine of those in England, uh, and the results. He drew 58, hmm. lost 77, and won 190, giving him an overall victory percentage of nearly 60%. Jesus, that's really impressive. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it just, considering, you know, that takes into account the season, um, the half season that he played for Maxwell. Yeah. Uh, you know, the seasons that he was playing for Park Grove when obviously they were, went up against the big boys and were losing regularly. But mm. from the point he was playing for Queen's Park, he basically didn't lose. Because I've got all the games here, and it's sort of like, once you get to the Queen's Park bit, it's just, just one page, drawn. <laughs> one, 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 drawn one. From April 1881 to April 1882, there is one loss. Um, <laughs> but in the notes, it says that they lost only one nil, and they were missing four of the starting 11 on the day right. for some reason. So even even if you take out, you know, a third of their team and replace them with random players that you found just near the pitch. <laughs> you could only do them 1-0. Yeah, you could only just about scrape a 1-0 victory if you were lucky. So that's that's how good Queen's Park were at that time. So, yeah, that is the story of Andrew Watson. A very under represented character in football considering Mm. how important he was Scotland should be more proud of him they really should definitely hi there it's Emma chief organiser at Consistently Eccentric here to remind you all that if you like what you hear you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast Spotify and iTunes how fancy you can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.